Thank you for listening to the Silver Club Podcast. Here's your host, two-time Walker Cupper and former world amateur number one Steve Scott, and men's golf coach at Yale University and golf historian Colin Sheehan. Welcome to another Silver Club Podcast. This is episode 38, and we've got a spectacular episode right in front of you today. Neil Regan, the club historian at Venerable Wingfoot Golf Club in Mamaroneck, New York, the Mets section, is joining us today. Colin Sheehan will also be with us. But before we get to that, I just wanted to thank a few people who always make this Silver Club podcast possible. Our sponsors, the Dunhill brand, Torch Eyewear, the Winston Collection, Turtleson, and the Leith Silver Company. We sincerely thank each and every one of these great companies, and you can check out their websites with a link through our website on silverclubgs.com on the web. And don't forget, we're on Twitter at Silver Club Golf, as well as Instagram, and we're on Facebook too. We always have a lot of great fun pictures and ideas and thoughts to throw out there, so Social media world is where it's at. As far as our event schedule goes, we've had to push a few things back, just like all the other groups in the world have, but we have a great second half of the year in store for you. Just a few things to notice. We've got a great event on September 23rd at Trinity Forest in Dallas, almost sold out. We've got a wonderful event also in Atlanta at Setting Down Creek. And for our members... We've just put out a great opportunity at Prairie Dunes in the heart of Kansas. Great Perry Maxwell design out there. We visit some wonderful architecturally significant venues all around the country for the Silver Club Golfing Society. A great way to get your competitive juices out and travel around the country and just meet a lot of great people who like to do the same. Again, silverclubgs.com on the web, at Silver Club Golf on Instagram and Twitter, and keep up to date on what we're doing with our competitive amateur society. All right, great stories coming ahead right now. Neil Regan, the club historian at Winged Foot Golf Club. Enjoy. At the Silver Club Podcast, we love to bring you people that are interwoven into the fabric of our great game. So today, we're bringing you a man who epitomizes this deep connection to the entire game, and more specifically, the Winged Foot Golf Club in Mamaroneck, New York, host of the 2020 U.S. Open just north of New York City. And you know you found a great club when it has its very own club historian. So we'd like to welcome Winged Foot's club historian, Neil Regan, to the Silver Club Podcast. Hello, Steve. Hi, Colin. How are you guys? Hey, Neil. Nice to have you, man. This Great is, to see you again. This is a very special podcast because Colin, our resident historian, is also joining here today in the fun in the Q&A we have right here on your doorstep. So I'm just going to jump right into it, Neil. A friend of yours on Golf Club Atlas wrote, those who play with Neil see something almost childlike in his play. And it's a serious comment because he does not play for score nor glory. He plays for fun. He creates, he invents, he discovers. Where did this love and this childlike play come about? Well, I think the uh, fun of the game is the glory of the game. So maybe I do play for glory. Uh, I don't know. I just love the way the ball bounces. I love the way it moves through the air. 
I, you know, the Scots have a, a saying, um, if there's no wind, there's no golf. And I think you could add to that. If there's no bounce, there's no golf either. Now we played one time at my former club where I was a pro at Paramount Country Club, a really fun Tillinghast design just on the other side of the Hudson River from Winged Foot. And you you have these things on every hole, and, and Paramount had these has these great greens that you have you play these challenge putts. Uh, where where did that come from? You know, at Wingfoot, we discovered that you can um, putt in several different ways to get to the hole. Some putts go in, and some putts go close. And we discovered that very often um, the putt that comes close is a forty five or ninety degree different angle than the putt that actually goes in and it became so much fun to realize that from almost anywhere on the green you can hit a putt that breaks huge amounts but tracks all the way to the hole and that's part of the design you know the, all the, all the slopes are big slopes that lead to the hole so yeah i mean isn't that what we're unfortunately the, the secret ingredient of all the great old courses is that they were anticipated to roll at probably seven or eight, some sort of normal pace. And then you get the combination of the grade, the ancient grade with the modern speed. And now you get this kind of to the limit sort of edge of reason kind of standard for greens at Wingfoot. Yes, you do. But, and, and many courses, as you know, better than me have responded to that by softening their contours to uh, to react better with the faster, shorter grass, faster putts. But at Wingfoot in particular and numerous other places, I think the faster green speeds actually improve the great contours. If they were designed uh, properly, the great contours, uh, even as, as much as 5%, 6% that we still have at Wingfoot, you can find your way to the hole. It's just that it's not going to be a one foot break. It might be a 12 foot break. Very cool. Well, you know, so um, I was telling Steve before the call that you are second generation club historian at, at, at Wingfoot, at least second generation. I got to meet you when you were sort of uh, Doug, Doug Smith's protege back in 2004 in the amateur year. And um, take us through sort of your, your history at the club. Um, you know, a background in golf, but, you know, sort of how, um, how you sort of anointed yourself, the, uh, the protege to, to Doug Smith. I think I didn't anoint myself. I got roped in by the oldest member and I enjoyed the conversation and fell in love with the history of the golf course. Doug Smith, as you remember, was a, um, a great man. And he dedicated the last 25 years of his life to what he called the, the small histories that keep us free. He was a war hero who had fought five years in the war, uh, ending up with all sorts of medals, leading infantry at the Battle of the Bulge, had seen everything. His unit broke the Waffen SS, which was the toughest SS unit. And when he came back to America, he knew what freedom was all about. And he dedicated the last years of his life to golf. And you ask, how can a man who saw what he saw, as his generation saw, spent so much time on the intricacies of uh, trivial golf, you might say. And that's what he would say, the small histories keep us free. You don't fight for freedom, you fight for free people. And free people do things that they do, one of which is play golf. 
Well, tell us, so give us, give us some of the sort of fun history of the club and from bring us all the way back to the connection with the, um, with the athletic club and, and, and from there. Uh, you know, we started at um, the golf boom after Francis, we met golf in America took off uh, all the NYAC, New York athletic club members. Uh, many of them fell in love with golf. NYAC was any sport in the world any interest group in the club would form a sub-club to play that sport. So the NYAC members formed a golf club that's still in existence called the Nyackers, and they basically played all over the Met area, everywhere they could. And by about 1920, they said, we need our own course. And so they formed a group to build a course for the NYAC. When the course came to be built by 1923, the NYAC declined to purchased the club. So the club was never affiliated with the NYAC, but uh, all the original members were NYAC members. And what's interesting about the pedigree of the original members is this, what I just said, they all had played virtually every course in the Met area, which had the finest golf courses in America at the time, perhaps. So virtually every member of Wingfoot at the beginning was like an outpost club member. He had played all the golf courses around and he knew what he was looking for. So that leads to their request. One of my favorite sort of lines is, is their sort of uh, list, their, their short uh, demand to Tillinghast, which was? Oh, their, their demand to Tillinghast was give us a man's sized course. And it. <laughs> it's great, yeah. And, and uh, we've recently found some more uh, in, the, in the board meeting notes. Uh, Basically, they would just ask uh, Tillinghast what, what he thought of the golf course. And he said, for, this, is not a, this is almost a correct quote. I don't have it in front of me. Um, in my opinion, this is the finest courses I've ever laid out. So we're kind of proud of that. And pretty good, well, pretty, pretty good company for sure. You know, think, think about, let's put Wingfoot really into context of a few of some of the other great 36 hole facilities. I mean, Wingfoot is not just, it's not just Oakmont. It doesn't have just 18 holes. You have, you have 36 amazing golf holes, the West, which will host the U S open. And then the East, which has also hosted many championships. I actually played the hundredth Met open there a few years back, which was, which was very exciting. So two venerable golf courses. Uh, What other, I mean, you think of the other 36-hole facilities in the country that are like it. There's not too many. You know, of all the great 36-hole collections in the world, I think it's the only one that good that's a private club. Bandon, of course, competes. Uh, Bally Bunyan competes, but it's a uh, semi-private, if you know, as you know. Baltusrol is simply wonderful. Um, Pinehurst Complex is wonderful. Streamsong is wonderful, but there's no place like Wingfoot for 36 holes of just great private club golf. That's so open to so many guests. You know, I don't want to stress that we're private. We are private, but no great golf course has is busier. I would say. I love everyone of course loves the sort of the nuance and the difference between the West and the East. West is clearly the championship one, but the East has all these moments that you don't, you don't otherwise get on the, on the West. And you have almost, a little more quirk and variety. Tell me, tell, tell our listeners what's so special about the East. You know, Tillinghast did, had a, ver- a relatively flat piece of land, and it took a magnificent vision to realize a natural routing on that land. If you take a flat piece of land, most 
architects are going to do a good job, but they're going to kind of do it on paper and put it on the land. And somehow or other, he found the topography, the best topography on the land. And it happens the East Course has more of that than the West. Uh, it has more slopes. It has a, a couple of natural features, a cave, uh, a pond. It's got a um, just a little bit more rolling terrain. Can you um, can you dispel this myth about the 1929 Open and the East Course being the uh, original choice? Where did that Where did that come from? I'm not 100 percent sure. It was written in one of the newspaper articles many years ago. Doug Smith refuted it, proved it, refuted it again and again and again. We thought we had it uh, defeated, and then uh, Dan Jenkins, God bless him, repeated it again for 06, and it's now back out there again. But it was never true. <laughs> so, so for our listeners, um, there's this kind of uh, old wives' tale that the East was identified for the 29 Open, and there was there had been heavy rains, and of course they actually, as a backup, somehow moved to the West. It's almost like a tale that out that Wingfoot members came up themselves to sort of you know create a mythology of their of the two courses that you know. The, that one was sort of ready in backup, and that's now the legendary course. Yeah, I could believe that. I'm not sure how the rumor started. And, and you know, newspaper writers are looking for copies, so maybe he just, some guy made it up. Who knows? Always fun of those stories that they all go around. Let, let's get into the restoration a little bit, because both, both golf courses, all 36 holes, have been restored now. Get us into why you chose Gil Hance, Obviously, he's a he's a fantastic course designer, restorer. Uh, recently, I mean, in the last several years, did some work not too far down the road at at Tillinghast uh, Design Quaker Ridge as well. Talk a little bit about uh, the whole restoration project and why it had to happen. Uh, what had happened over the years, uh, the whole golf world um, had a historical memory loss uh, post World War II. I doubt many people in America could name an architect. Uh, maybe some could name Donald Ross. All the club members, in my opinion, this is one of the driving forces coming back from World War II and the Depression. Green, green, green is good. Uh, golf clubs planted trees all over. You know what happened in Oakmont in the 50s. Uh, the USG actually pushed it. Uh, they sent around landscape architects to golf clubs to recommend tree plantings. I have the tree planting plan we have from 1980, and it was designed by a woman who looked at every golf site, every green site, as if it was the backyard of a, uh, you know, a Greenwich estate. Every open place where 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 the golf exists, as Bill Core would say, was filled in with a um, a collection of uh, five hardwoods, four uh, native evergreens and, and, and flowering shrubs. And it was beautiful if you wanted that in your backyard, but it took away <laughs> all the golf, all the golf. Golf is about recovery options around the greens, especially at Wingfoot. And we discovered a bunch of our members realized what was going on. And in the 1990s, along with many other people in the golf business, realized that a great mistake had been made with massive tree plantings for agronomic reasons, but also for design reasons. Uh, taking away the golf, the golf isn't the fairway in the green, it's the whole green site, it's the recovery shots around the green. And when you plant trees, 
where you should be hitting a slap shot, you've committed a crime. <laughs> <laughs> I remember watching that 1997 PGA Championship, the famous rainbow with uh, Davis Love there. And yeah, they're, they're, everything was just so tree-lined and so enclosed. And yeah, when you have those those trees everywhere, you can't get to the greens, right? You hit it in the trees and you have to chip out and you have to, you, your recovery options, like you said, aren't, aren't, very, aren't very many. Well, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, our board members and our members in general are very, very smart. And even though they weren't aware of architecture per se they were aware of it in their soul because they're golfers when we went out with Gil Hansen on his very first walk around for the golf course we had a tree that had been planted in 1959 over a bunker a pine tree on 11 west and it was in your face you could actually get almost poked with pine needles as you were standing over your ball totally totally wrong and it had come down in a windstorm that spring and we were out there and the and the tree was still lying on top of the bunker like a broken matchstick. And uh, Gil was informed right there that, don't worry, we already have a tree coming. We're going to have it replaced before the course opens. So I'm St. Patrick's Day. And this is what Gil is so good at. He led them through a Socratic question and answer session. Tell me what it was like when the tree was there. What were your options? And the answer was, uh, the tree was in your face. So what did you do? You punched out sideways. Then what? Well, you hit a wedge to the green. Then what? Uh, you had a, a four or a five. What happens now with the tree gone? Well, you, you have an option to go for the green. Tell me about the green. Well, it's got this big elephant buried in it. It's incredibly steep, and there's a bunker in front. So what do you do? You take an extra club to make sure you get over the bunker. What happens? You might be on the back of the green over the back. Then what? Then you have to hit a terrific shot to get up and down. But you might get your birdie if you actually hit the green. So what are the results? Well, you might get a birdie, you might get a four, you might get a five, you might get a six. And then they go, what's the other option? You punch out, you hit it on the green. So which story are you telling in the grill room afterwards? How you got up and down with a great recovery shot or how you punched out from under the tree from the ferry? <laughs> <laughs> That's good stuff. That's good stuff. And so they, they changed their mind right there. And we sent out a letter to the members that day, I think, saying we, we're reconsidering that tree. Uh, we'll try it without a tree for a year. Then we'll reevaluate. The tree, of course, has never been back. And that was the sort of process Gil was able to educate the members with by letting them see, not by telling them what the answer was, by letting them figure it out for themselves. Us, I should say us. So, um, you know, there's always, tell us about the sort of reputation. You know, there's a reputation of the club having sort of a, you know, uh, a significant number of single digit handicaps. I mean, I guess it, it's sort of, um, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, a difficult, famous course. That's a challenge. You don't sort of want to go through the membership process to get uh, embarrassed. Tell, tell us about the culture of the club and the, and the membership. And is that sort of true about the kind of the, the sort of depth of uh, strong players? Well, as you know, yes, it is. Uh, one of your top players, I think, uh, at Yale, is a Wingfoot member, and uh, as good as he is, he still will struggle to win the club championship. He might win it one day. Uh, we've always had great players. Uh, Herbert Warren Wynn said in the 30s, it was often said that um, Wingfoot, Wingfoot members could beat the uh, British-Irish Walker Cup team, and it was probably true. You know, we had uh, George Voigt, for example, who was number one amateur in the world. Um, 
you know, we had Dick Chapman growing up in the 30s, won the 40 amateur, 48 uh, British amateur. Uh, Dick Mayer became a pro leading tour, tour player. Claude Harmon and Craig Wood has have always had a, a junior program. Tom Neerport continued it. So, yes, we've always had superb players. And I'll, I'll tell you a little anecdote. This this is the sort of thing that happens to me, uh, happens at Wingfoot. Many years ago, I was uh, playing with a, a member who I didn't know. And I was a, a, a seven handicap at the time, and he said he was an eight. So we go out on the first hole on the East course, and I see him swing. I go, wait, 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 wait a minute. Hold on. <laughs> you know, what's going on here? And he's got one of these just perfect swings. So I get to know him. He's a friend now. Um, and we get to talking. And it's clearly he's, he's not better than Nate, but he is way better than Nate. Um, so we're talking afterwards. And I said, you know, well, how are you possibly an eight? He goes, you know, I used to be much better, but I haven't really touched the club before in two years. I've been so busy with work. And um that's my handicap now and it, it pretty much was and then we got talking about great great golf courses beth page is one of my very favorite golf courses i go out there a lot and um i mentioned beth page he says i grew up on beth page as a matter of fact i hold the course record <laughs> i go how'd that happen he goes well i was in the new york state junior amateur when i was 17 and the gamblers used to back me for thousands of dollars against these hustlers and you know he was a plus two all his life and then he gave up golf for work and this is just like a casual guy you might meet at Wingfoot who, yes, he, you turn around and, and he's, a, he's a superb golfer. You mentioned but, um, you, mentioned you, you uh, triggered a, a great U.S. Amateur uh, trivia question there. Um, 1940, last time the uh, U.S. Amateur uh, winner did so at his home course. It'll probably be a long time before that ever happens again, but... That's a pretty cool. That's a pretty cool detail that I I think is probably appropriate for Wingfoot. Yes, and Dick Chapman, he grew up there. He was one of uh, Craig Woods Juniors. Um, he not only won the U.S. Amateur, he also won the British Amateur. But he was a perennial Walker Cup player, and also I believe still tied for most uh, times playing in the Masters as an amateur. I think Billy Joe Patton and he both played seventeen times or so. And Colin, he was also a, uh, a a mutual, a good friend with a mutual friend of ours, uh, Bob Hunt. That used to play with him an awful lot. Very nice. Take us through the um, the majors in the sort of fifties and sixties, and 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 I would definitely want to hear your thoughts about the massacre. Uh, well, the majors, the quick rundown: the U.S. Opens were 29, 59, 74, 84, 2006, and now this year um they were won by jones casper hell Irwin, uh uh fuzzy zeller and uh, jeff ogilvy you know they become the legendary stories in the golf world both 59 casper with his putting exhibition and 74 the massacre were um uh you know uh, what's his name you know who I mean, from San Francisco. Hale. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, well, Hale Irwin was, was the winner, was he not? But uh, Hale, yeah, Hale Irwin won. But you know, I'm spacing out on, on the name. Oh, of the, well, the year before it was. So that was a reaction to Johnny Miller '63 at Oakmont the year before. Is that what was yeah. that? Was yeah. was '74 <laughs> the height of the USGA's old format of just narrow fairways, thick rough, and possible greens? Did it? Did it? Did that reach a breaking point that year? 
I think it reached a starting point <laughs> right there. That's what the the story is anyway. That the the players all tend to believe that no matter uh, what they say, it was Sandy Tatum who set up the course, and he was explicit. He said no, he did not set it up that way, uh, and he repeated that as late as 2006. But the players tended to believe that it was a revenge for the 63 at Oakmont by Johnny Miller. You know who can say? I, I don't know. Yeah, it seems like there's always a compelling story that comes out. Obviously, in 2006, when Jeff Ogilvy kind of snuck in there and had a couple chip-ins and great up and down on the 72nd, and then Phil did his thing and hit it off the gallery tent and plugged it in the bunker and made double. Uh, Wingfoot just always seems to get that compelling champion, doesn't it? It seems to, and, and Jeff Ogilvy deserves all the credit. I think there were five guys – who could have parred in and each one would have won. And he was the only one who did. Um, and I think there were seven or eight guys who could have parred in the last seven holes and one, including uh, VJ. And I think it's uh, it's a mind game as much as a golf game at Wingfoot. You cannot make a mental mistake. And you know more about this, Steve, than almost anybody. You can hit the shots, but, and you can hit the shots under pressure, but, but if you make the wrong choice, you're in trouble. So, um, Neil, when you, when, when I, when we were hanging out in 04, that was the amateur year, you were, um, you were using sort of old black and white images of the, of the course from the 29. And, and what I loved is you were identifying all these kind of back left corners on 18 and all these little edge can edges that were, had become either fair, became fringe or rough. And you were in the beginning of that process of reclaiming it. And obviously um, it's gone through a full cycle. I remember how I'm, I can imagine how gratifying it's been for you in these last 20 years to see it. What are we going to see? Um, what are we going to see from the sort of the width and the, and the dimensions of the greens? That's going to be a little different from maybe Oh six. Uh, well, we recovered the perimeters, but the perimeters never lost their original contours. We can now once again, put pins in areas that were either one foot from the edge or actually off the green as late as 2012. And um, we do use those pin positions. And what I was mentioning before about the, the speed of the grass, whereas Jack Nicholas puttered off one west in 1974 because he was above the hole and kind of took a more or less direct line at the hole and failed to stop it, that same putt now is about eight feet wider. He can putt, change his direction. Instead of going down the fall line, he can putt way more sideways and have the contours of the green bring it back in across the fall line and break his downhill speed. So an amazing factoid about the restoration is this. The average slope of the greens is higher now than it was before the restoration. Wow. All those, all, those side, all those side contours, right, that kind of coming off the bunkers and or higher the high ground, interesting. Yeah, yes, and, and that's one of the things that Tillinghast was so good at. Um, those side slopes coming in don't just slope in. They were contoured with an intelligence, as I say, so that you can break your downhill speed. They tended to be coming off a bunker, not just sloping into the green, but actually sloping a little bit towards the upslope of the green. So as you came off a bunker, 
instead of just feeding downhill, you the the the, slope, the contour of the green will actually kind of turn you almost in, in unnoticeably, but definitely, and break your speed. And we see that all over. I was putting on one west yesterday in a pin position that we had a pin, but we hardly ever used it because it had about four feet of space and it was too steep. And now that we have the wider recovery there, you actually come down the hill and you almost hit the collar before you come back into the green. And that wasn't possible. So people were rightly complaining, saying this green is too steep. And at so many great courses, that sort of reasoning has led to the answer of soften the contours, where at Wingfoot, by recovering our perimeters, you can change the direction of your putt, change the roll of the ball from down the fall line to across the fall line, and you can maintain these grass speeds that we have. I will not say the stim speed because that's a terrible measurement, but we do cut the grass at the modern heights, the very short heights, and it is fun golf. It's not tricky golf. There's no such thing as an impossible putt at Wingfoot. Would would um would Billy Casper have laid up on the par three had the greens been in the in the original dimensions to have those features? Or is that something that you would still a shrewd golfer may consider? Do you think you might have a player come potentially lay up, not lay up, but hit underneath the holes slash the apron short of the green intentionally in order to sort of preserve a three? I think absolutely uh, the USGA is expecting it. If there's any wind in your face, Steve, you may remember playing there. If you have a yeah, yep. a cold wind in your face and you're playing from anywhere from 220 to 250, in the Met Open, for example, those long hitters were struggling to reach into a 10-mile-an-hour cold wind in their face. So full three woods, even for the tour guys, it could be a full three woods. So, yes. There was plenty of fairway there. And that's one of the designs that Tillinghast had. Our par threes all have fairways. And, and if you think of that for a second, that's somewhat unusual. <laughs> yeah, you think about laying up. And nobody really thinks about laying up on a par three. But, you know, you might at 16 at Cypress Point. or But uh, certainly not one with, with not an ocean surrounding it or something. But uh, re- really interesting. You obviously have great golf courses Let's talk about the lineage of the great golf professionals that you've had at Wingfoot, starting with Claude Harmon and Tom Neoporti and most currently Mike Gilmore. Why was it so important to have these great players and great teachers at Wingfoot? Well, we wanted the best, and it actually started – Mike Brady was our pro from through the 20s and 30s, and he lost in the playoffs for the U.S. Open twice. He was one of America's first great players, grew up with Francis Wiemet, Tommy Kerrigan, Walter Hagen up in Boston area. Um, and Craig Wood, as you might remember, the, um, won the Masters U.S. Open the same year. He was one of the best players in the world. And then Claude Harmon was who he was. And Tom Neoport won while, was, quit the tour to raise his family, became a club pro and won while still a club pro. And then Mike Gilmore, you know, he's he's not quite good enough to be on tour, but he's that good enough that he could play with the tour guys uh, on, a, on a daily basis. And, it, and you, well, you've played with him, you know, it's like, he's like you, Steve, that you, you actually did play on tour for a while, I believe, didn't you? Yeah, I, I did. I did, for sure. It's it's a heck of a slog, but you're right. Mike Gilmore, I played with him. Won the, he won the Met Open in the past, which is a uh, – 
just, I mean, Byron Nelson has won the Met Open, and I mean, all great, great players have done that. Mike Gilmore is uh, has always been a great ball striker, venerable player up in the Met section and nationally. Oh, one of the, the members love him so much because he's like a kid. He enjoys the golf. Tom Neaport enjoyed the golf. That's what we love. Every member at Wingfoot loves golf, and we want a pro who's very good but who loves the golf. Mike will be out there carrying his bag. 36 holes a day if you can. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've played with played with Mike quite a bit. Uh, give us your, before we get into and kind of close it out with talking about the upcoming U.S. Open, give us your top couple stories that you've, as the club historian there, there's got to be a, a few top nuggets that you love to tell to audiences who just revel in this stuff. Oh, well, there's a, a bunch. Um, we're hoping that some of them make it to the TV broadcast. There's little vignettes. Uh, one of my favorites that's too long to tell right here is the story of Babe Ruth at the 1929 Open with Bobby Jones and um, playing 54 holes while he was supposedly too sick to play baseball two days before the Open. And going AWOL basically uh, for the month of June while he was playing golf at Wingfoot and other places. Uh and there he is with Bobby Jones on the tee on the second round on Friday, smoking a cigar while Jones is swinging. It's it's just a great picture and a great story. <laughs> and we're hoping that it will make its way to TV because it takes a little longer to tell than what I've just said. Uh, one of my other favorite stories is Mickey Mantle. We're all New Yorkers here, so Mickey Mantle is still number one. Um, and he there's a fantastic story of him just before the 59 open, hitting the ball at a distance that uh, they still can't hit today. And that's the story we hope will make it onto the TV broadcast, too. Um, you know, picking out other stories, I just don't know. There's so many good ones. Um, give, us the, um, give us the origin of the Mulligan story. That's a good one. Oh, well, Mulligan, that's a great story. And there's a backstory to that, too, which most of your listeners will never have heard. Um, David Mulligan was a hotel guy. He came to Wingfoot in 1928, I think, from Canada. Um, he ran, I think it was the Plaza Hotel. He and his buddy, Frank Regan, uh, ran the uh, Astoria. And they would uh, zip up after lunch to Wingfoot to play. And typically they'd be rushing in at the last second and the other guys were on the tee. And so he would um, rush on the tee and said, do you mind if I hit a second one? I just got out of the car. And so they remember started calling that a mulligan. So Doug Smith did all the research on this. And he proved it. It's true. You know, he's got the contemporary references and stuff, but he also discovered that uh, Mr. Mulligan had a family, had two families that had never met. And he introduced the grandchildren to each other. <laughs> so he had a Mulligan with his first wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. Uh, and it's a good story. It was, you know, has, has a happy ending. Um, so yes, uh, he really was a Wingfoot member, and he really uh, did hit a second shot, and so the story is true. So, but it was—I always heard it was because he had the car and he did the driving that he kind of, kind of compelled his his playing partners to give him a mulligan because because he was sort of the guy with the lift. Is that that isn't necessarily true? I haven't heard that part. I've heard that he got out of the car, you know, and rushed on the tee. But uh, if you're saying that he took a bribe, you know, you, you get a ride for a free shot. I could believe that too. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. He's like, I covered the tolls. Like, give me an, I get an extra, 
get one extra off the first tee. I was going to say one other thing with Frank, uh, uh, what he did as a restaurant man, uh, we had some mysterious um, food uh, losses in our kitchen. And so the board, Nibs Nobles, said uh, uh, to Frank Regan and to uh, Dave Mulligan, why don't you guys investigate it? And the report from the board comes back. Sure enough, they knew where to look. Uh, they caught our chef loading his car with all our steaks that you boys thought you were going to be having this weekend. <laughs> so, yeah, he, he caught the guys uh, stealing the food. That's awesome. That's like out of a Scorsese movie, the you know, chef at yeah. the country club, bootleg in the... <laughs> exactly, yeah. Bootleg in the steaks. Yeah. Uh, that's what great. About, I, we got we to gotta ask, you, you, can, you can decline, but do you have any you know, good stories from when the Donald was uh, a member of the club? I, you know, I've never played with him. Um, and, you know, I can't, every, anything else I might say would be just hearsay. So I don't see any good point to doing that at all. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, let's get into the U.S. Open uh, just a little bit. And obviously this this week would be what would be the U.S. Open uh, originally scheduled it's going to be fall now, middle of September. So many, so many ways, really, a September U.S. Open is almost more appealing from a golf standpoint. Explain, explain for those who haven't played golf in the, in the Northeast in the fall, explain how a winged foot will look different in September than it might in June. Uh, I was talking to Steve Rabideau, our grounds crew chief, yesterday uh, about that, and we were, we were both – looking forward very much the weather in the fall is the best weather in in the met area um the winds are slightly different the course is fully mature not that it's nothing nothing wrong with it in june um the, the turf tends to be firm by the time you get to mid-september late september and steve will have will have had a full summer of prepping everything perfectly his biggest concern will be a summer full of uh, divots and uh ball marks but he's being very proactive about that, as are the members. Uh, but the weather, I, you know, I, I've lived my life for the last 35 years to play golf uh, from September and October virtually every day in, in the Met area. I don't go to Ireland in October for that reason. And it's just the best golf in the world, in my opinion. The, the, POA, the POA putting surfaces are as pure as any putting surface in the world, especially uh, mid-September to the end of October. I've I, I've always felt that way, and that's the one of the first things I talked about with Steve when they when they moved the Open to to September was this idea that like there it is going to take the USGA and Wingfoot some discipline to hold the turf back because that's that is the fastest the turf gets all year without even trying. Normal clubs get sort of almost borderline too fast. And you know, and we might very well have the open, knock on wood, it could be on four of the prettiest days of the year. No yeah. humidity, those gorgeous September days. I'm with you on that, on that sort of hidden fall secret season in the Northeast. And it's going to be, it, the course might never look better at any point, especially since there's no golf this spring, coming out of the renovation, the care that's going into it. it it's Is it not possible that Wingfoot might look the best in its in its near hundred year history. I I would say there's a distinct possibility. June is still springtime and the full beauty has not emerged, and uh, the fairway 
greens, the whole design has never looked better in general since Gill's restoration. Uh, all the um, all the beautiful underlying uh, lines where fairways and greens merged were never presented as well before Gill's restoration and before Steve's work. And in September, with everything in the height of, you know, in the flush of its bloom, I don't think it's ever going to look better. I, I really don't. Well, we, yeah, we can't wait. I mean, the, the golfing world cannot wait for that event. Uh, it, it will, it will look a little different uh, as far as the qualification processes to get there, but uh, we, we cannot wait to do that. Uh, hopefully I'll be on the broadcast with Fox. Uh, you mentioned a second ago, Colin, just to kind of wrap things up here, uh, almost 100 year history. In fact, 2021 was, uh, will be your centennial next Next year, what sort of things do you have planned? Is there anything uh, big in the works? Yes, absolutely. Uh, big in two ways. One, 2021, we were founded. 2023, we were open for play. We discussed when to have the centennial. We wanted to have a good party. We wanted to have two centennials, 2021 and 2023. But because of the open, we decided that not to have it in 2021 because too big of a production. So we're already in the planning for 2023 as our centennial um we're not quite sure what we're going to be doing but it will be a year-long process we'll have various events um and two items as a historian that i'm particularly interested in is this in the cornerstone was a later time capsule uh included among other things quote unquote the architect's original plans for the golf course don't know exactly what that means but i'm hoping and praying that that's telling has design we know the box is in there. We sent a scope in. Uh, it's there. So we hope to, during the centennial, take it out and reveal whether it's dust or what. Who knows? And the other is the greatest tree in golf, as Dave Anderson called it, was the Great Elm Tree on 10 East. came down in 1993. The whole course was designed around that tree, the clubhouse and the course. And it died of the Elm disease in 1993, finally. And sort of hoping that maybe maybe we can get another one back there it's been vacant for 30 years it wasn't good agronomically for the grass etc but it was magnificent for every other reason and we could put one back a little bit farther away from the green and no golf course and no clubhouse tie in better than wendahex clubhouse and tillinghouse golf course they work together to do that and the starting point was that great entry so yes there's a a hope in my mind anyway that perhaps we will get that great elm put back in well that's really exciting uh we can't wait for all of this and you know just thank you so much for your time neil and colin i we've we've had a we've had a lot of fun time flies when you're having fun talking to somebody with so much knowledge in the game and about such a venerable club just looking forward to watching this u.s open this year and all the great players try to battle this firm fast. Great play. So thank you, Neil, for spending time with us today. Steve, it's been a pleasure, Colin. It's great to see you. Uh, I hope to play golf with you soon. I know you don't have a home golf course right now, do you? <laughs> it's it's a great place to go for a walk with my kids and ride bikes, but uh, I'm not worried. I, I do. Uh, I would. I look. Nothing would make me happier than to get a game, or at the very least, even better. 
I'd love to walk around the property with you in the in the run up to the open and and, and get a feel for that. We can certainly do uh, at least one of those and probably both. We'll we'll make it happen. Well, we'll do that and we'll have a, a challenge putt contest on every single green. That would be uh, a lot of three putts, I think. <laughs> oh, oh, one last thing I want to say. Uh, Outpost Club, you guys are both involved, obviously, with the Outpost Club. I think Ralph Kennedy should be your uh, mascot. So he was. Yeah, I, I I told you about him, Steve. Right? Yeah. Explain explain why. Wingfoot founding member, America's first golf nut, 1910, 1919, he met a man who claimed to have played more golf courses than anybody. He said, I can beat that. I've already had 176. He kept a science scorecard of every course he played from 1910 to 1957. Ended up with 3,600 golf courses, scorecards signed everywhere. National Geographic did a big article on him, the only golf article they've ever done. Uh, when he hit 3,000, he played at St. Andrews. There was a big turnout at the old course for him to play. He played all over the world. He was a traveling salesman. He loved his golf course and he had fantastic taste in 1955. He named his favorite courses, and they were uh, Cypress, Pine Valley, Wingfoot, Jasper. Uh, just great taste. And every Outpost member, Outpost Club member who wants to play at great courses should be. Think of Ralph Kennedy as his as your patron saint. He's also uh, on the cover of Saturday Evening Post twice, uh, and so you would have a, a ready-made logo. Saturday Evening Post still sells his image on their cups and plates and things like that. Uh, so you'd have a, a mascot ready for for the Outpost Club. <laughs> Beautiful. I see him wearing a uh, an Argyle uh, Scottish cap in one of those Saturday evening posts. That's pretty. Is that the one with the B or with the pencil and the scorecard? Pencil and scorecard. Look closely. That's a winged foot pencil and a winged foot scorecard. Very nice. There where's his collection? Where's his collection of scorecards now? You, he gave it to the USGA. Uh, it's a mag. One of the jewels of their collection. Uh, it's in a bunch of scrapbooks, and it's still valuable research. Jimmy Urbina, for example, used it recently for uh, to get an old scorecard for Blindbrook. Um, and you know, it's, it's, uh, 3,600 scorecards plus, uh, if you like golf history, you just flip through that, sc that scrapbook and, and you'll just never come out. Very cool. Good suggestion. That's, that's unbelievable. We love, all of our listeners love out, love to get out there and play and, you know, our outpost club, silver club, everybody, we, uh, we like to get out there and play, but and I can't wait to do it with you sometime soon. Neil, let's, uh, let's do that. Thanks so much for your time again today. Thank you very much, Steve. Colin, good to see you too. Thank you, Neil. God bless you.